Mom and Dad Are Fighting is sponsored by The Terrible Two, the hilarious new children's book series that's filled with pranks, hijinks, and cows. From New York Times best-selling authors, longtime friends, and certified pranksters, Mac Barnett and Jory John. That's The Terrible Two from Amulet Books. And by Little Passports, the award-winning subscription that inspires your child to learn about the world. Featuring a new country each month, packages arrive filled with souvenirs, stickers, activities, and more. Save 40% on your first month today with promo code FIGHT40. Learn more at littlepassports.com fighting and use the promo code FIGHT40. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting Slate's parenting podcast, the Call Your Mom edition. I'm Allison Benedict, an editor at Slate and the mom of Harry 6, Sam 4, and Wally almost 2. I'm Dan Coyce. I'm also an editor at Slate, and I am the dad of Harper, who is 7, and Lyra, who is 9. Hi, Dan. Hey. On today's show, we will welcome New York Times money columnist Ron Lieber back to the show to talk about his new book, The Opposite of Spoiled, and about how to raise generous kids. Then, Whiplash star J.K. Simmons stood up at the Oscars and implored us all to call our moms. So, we are calling our moms. We're calling you moms. We promise this segment will be either delightful or excruciating, so stay tuned to find (laughs) out. (laughs) Also, Parenting Triumphs and Fails, a listener call about how to unload your kids on other parents and recommendations. And for our Slate Plus segment, Ron Lieber will stick around to tell us about one of his greatest triumphs or fails. But before we get to all that, we have a few announcements. And this first one is a biggie, a big announcement. Siren, blaring. This week, the Slate Group, which is Slate's parent organization, launched a new business, a podcast network called Panoply. Dan, do you know what Panoply means? I believe it means uh, a bunch of different things, like I have a panoply of character flaws. Not just a bunch of different things, but a complete or impressive collection of things. Your panoply may not be impressive, but the panoply of panoply... Hmm, is. Okay, as part of the impressive collection, Panoply will feature the exciting stable of Slate podcasts like this one and brand new podcasts that we're creating with other media outlets, authors, thinkers, and personalities. Panoply has partnered with the New York Times Magazine to produce an ethicist podcast. There's a Vulture TV podcast from New York Magazine, which I'm psyched about, and others from Inc., Real Simple, and Popular Science, just to name a few. Everyone at Slate is super excited to listen to these new shows, and you should definitely check them out, too. You can hear Panoply programs on Stitcher, SoundCloud, and on all major podcast apps. To hear some of the first offerings of the Panoply Network right now, go to iTunes.com slash Panoply, P-A-N-O-P-L-Y. Dan, what other exciting announcements do we have? Uh, well, we, of course, want you to join our membership program, Slate Plus, but we have an exciting reason to do so this week. If you are a member of Slate Plus, you, of course, get bonus podcast segments on this podcast. You get them on uh, on pretty much all our other great, most popular podcasts. But you also get early access to Slate's long-form journalism, and you get bonus material about those long, ambitious pieces. For example... This week, we published Chris Kirk's really funny and fascinating story about his attempts to solve email, to solve the headache that email was causing him, not by uh, just emailing differently, but by, in fact, building his own email app from scratch. 
programming and coding an email app for his own computer. If you're a Plus member, you can download audio of Chris reading the piece. If you're a design junkie, you can read about his graphic design decisions. You can also listen to him chat with his total nightmare of an editor about how the piece (laughs) came to be. Total Um, nightmare of an editor who wrote an awesome headline. Tell our listeners what the headline to that piece is. Oh, it is battling my demons, spelled D-A-E-M-O-N, like the mailer demon who constantly sends you email when it bounces back. I think it might be like slightly too arch, but whatever. No, I really love Uh, it. Not not too arch for me, and that is a low bar. Good. Uh, So to join Slate Plus and to see all this awesome bonus stuff, um, go to our special URL. It's slate.com slash fighting plus. That's slate.com slash fighting plus. Allison, back to you. And final announcement, as always, please subscribe to Mom and Dad are Fighting in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please keep spreading the word to parents and non-parents alike. Okay, on to triumphs and fails. Dan, you go first. Uh, I have a triumph this week. So the finale of MasterChef Junior was Tuesday night, and my kids were pretty upset about it. They were happy about who won. They were happy that Nathan won over the hated Andrew. But they pointed out that not for the first time, in fact, that it is not fair because only boys win MasterChef Junior. There have been three seasons so far, and boys have won all three. And I asked them why they thought that was, and they said, well, there might be a lot of reasons. But one problem they think with the show is that there are only boy judges. There are three men who, three chef men who are the judges of the show. Um, So now they have decided, my children, to write a letter to the network uh, requesting that MasterChef Junior add women as judges. And I, my triumph is that I am encouraging them, and I have told them that when they write this letter, I will send it to the MasterChef Junior publicist at Fox with instructions for her to pass it along to Gordon Ramsay, please. And when I left for work this morning, they were prepping that letter and like discussing what it would say. And I am really proud of them for taking action soon enough They will be on Twitter expressing their outrage like the rest of us. But I bet a letter will do more good in this specific case. And I'm very proud of them for having that impulse and pleased with myself for fostering that impulse. I am very proud of them, too. That's really cool. And uh, if it's any consolation, I think Top Chef for many seasons was just men. And there was just a woman who won. And there have been women that have won. But definitely the most recent Top Chef winner was a woman because I still watch that show. Uh, Okay, I have a fail. Actually, I have two fails. One is super short. I got a voicemail from the pediatric dentist's office asking me if we had moved and if they should forward our charts to another office since it's been so long since the kids have been to the dentist. So, whoops, I'm going to call right after we're done recording. I'm going to call and make an appointment. The other fail is that I took our listeners' advice. Never do that, Dan. Do not take our listeners' advice. Uh, I botched it miserably. Last week, the kids had off for President's Day. And so did I, and so did you, Dan. But John did not, which, dun dun dun, that means I was with the kids alone all day. I was dreading it, not because I don't like to spend time with them, but because it came on the freezing cold Monday after a freezing cold weekend. So the kids were super stir crazy just like from the get go, and so was I. But taking our listeners' snow day advice, I started out the day in a very positive manner. I typed out a schedule just like one of our snow day winners suggested, and I explained the deal to the kids. Here are all the things we're doing today, broken down by the hour. And once we get through them, many of them which are fun, you can watch TV. I think the main problem with this strategy is that my kids are too young, or at least Sam and Wally are. They Even, can't actually read. Well, they can't read. That's not really the problem. But they can't, like, they have no, like, sense of if I do this, like, I like patience and, like, working toward a goal. Like, that's not, I don't think they 
can quite get that. I mean, Wally obviously definitely can't. But uh, one of the not one of the winners, but someone else who wrote in with similar advice about writing out a schedule. I said, I can't wait to do this till my kids are older. And he said, oh, your kids are old enough now. So you're wrong, dude. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> or so, maybe, maybe your kids are wrong, Allison. Maybe, maybe. Maybe it's their fail. So the first two activities, which was an apartment obstacle course that I set up and a ninja laser maze thingy made out of duct tape, which was similar to another of the Snow Day winter suggestions, but we just didn't have any yarn. They were supposed to take an hour and then get me to a 30-minute play with your Legos break. But the kids lost interest after about 20 minutes, and then they refused to play by themselves because they were all excited by me actually creating these activities, that they just wanted more (laughs) activities. Uh, So then I did a blindfolded food tasting, which was a bust because they kept spitting stuff out. Uh, And halfway through, when I gave them pieces of chocolate because I thought that would keep them more engaged, they were just like, oh, my God, chocolate. We want more chocolate, more chocolate. We're done with this food tasting. They, like, ripped off their blindfolds, and the whole thing was done. And it was, like, 10 o'clock. Like, we had gone through everything, and it was 10 o'clock. We didn't end up sticking to the schedule, which probably frustrated me more than had we not even had one. The day ended in tears, and I think my failure was that I had expectations. Uh, uh, that's always a fail. Yes, <laughs> I would like to note for the record that on President's Day, I made a list and my kids did fine. <laughs> Follow the list. Good for you. Yep. You're politically active, Master Chef watching kids. Yep. All right, let's pause for a word from our first sponsor for this week's show. This week's podcast is sponsored by the hilarious prank-filled new children's book series, The Terrible Two, from Amulet Books. It is perfect for fans of Diary of a Wimpy Kid. It is by the New York Times bestselling authors Mac Barnett and Jory John. It is totally adorable. I have mentioned before on the show that Lyra loved this book so much that she left it on my dresser with a little note on top of it, like, and I woke up like Alice waking up in Wonderland with a little note that said, basically, like, read me. Uh, The book is totally adorable. And I also just want to point out that it is filled, this book, with cow facts. I'm now going to share a cow fact with our listeners. Cows have 360-degree panoramic vision. Would you like to sneak up on a cow? You can't. They can see you. Um, anyways, the book is adorable. It is about two pranksters in a school in a town filled with cows, hence the cow facts. Uh, once again, it is called The Terrible Two. It is the first in a series. It's by Mac Barnett and Jory John, and it is great for new chapter book readers um, who are looking for something funny and fun to read. I was reading a book the other day to Sam and realized it was also by Mac Barnett. I wish I could remember what the book was, but I was like, oh, I know this guy. And then I was like, oh, no, I don't. I he's, our, he's my friend, basically. <laughs> yeah. All right, let's move on. Yesterday, an envelope came in the mail addressed to Dan and Lyra Kois from Doctors Without Borders. Lyra was really excited to open it and to see the thank you that was enclosed in it. And it came to us because this past Christmas, Lyra and I made a contribution to that organization using some of her own money. And that contribution happened because I was following some advice that I read in Ron Lieber's column about families and money in the New York Times. Now, Ron has a book out. It's called The Opposite of Spoiled, Raising Kids Who Are Grounded, Generous, and Smart About Money. It's got great tips and advice about how to talk about money with your kids, how to manage your children's spending, and how to encourage work. We've got an awesome piece by Ron on Slate this week about allowances. But today, we've got Ron here with us to talk about charity. How do you instill in your kids that giving to others is a worthwhile use of your money? Thank you so much for coming out on the show, Ron. Thanks for having me. So you argue in the book that rather than shielding our kids from the sort of the ways that we help people in need, we should involve them in that as early as possible. Why do you think so? 
Well, I think as with any money conversation, talking to them about charity is a great way for them to begin to understand what it is that we actually stand for. What are the values that we hold dear? Uh, if you tell them what you're giving, who you're giving to, how you use your volunteer time instead of just doing it, they begin to get a better sense of the things that are most important to you and maybe some of the things that are less important because you're going to give more to the things that you feel most passionately about. And it's also a great kind of gut check for a parent or parents uh, to actually look at their charitable allocation, so to speak, because sometimes they may find that they don't like what they see. And it's also interesting to have the kids question your judgment and your choices, because sometimes they may point something out to you that you had not realized yourself. Do you suggest that kids have a choice in who they give their money to or that parents present them with options? So there's a couple ways to look at this. First, with allowance, you can and I think should dictate to them that some of their allowance gets donated to charity. Those choices they can make all by themselves. And I wouldn't put too many restrictions on them, particularly early on, uh, ages you know, starting five or six to maybe nine or ten. I would let them do whatever they want. But at that point, I think maybe around nine or ten, as the writer Catherine Newman put it to me, it's probably good at that point to restrict their ability to give to, say, animal organizations. You know, kids love giving uh, to help cute, cuddly koala bears or turtles or dolphins. And that's all very nice. And they get the stuffed animals in the mail and it's cute and everything. But at a certain point, probably around nine or 10, it's time to have them reckon with the fact that there are real human beings just like them who are simply not as lucky or they live in a part of the world that is not doing as well. And you should restrict their contributions to helping people specifically at a certain point. So that's, quote unquote, their money, their allowance money. But I also think around that time, you should bring the kids in on your charitable giving and explain to them, OK, for every $100 we give away, we give 10 here and we give 20 there and we give four here. And we'd like to know what you think of how we divide our giving. And maybe you have some ideas about how we should give differently and give them a little license, a little agency to change the overall household allocation. Those discussions are really rich in every sense of the word. And I enjoy having them with our daughter. And I think most people would be surprised at some of the things that the kids point out. Yeah, there's a great story in the book about sitting at the table with your daughter who's eight and just like having a hundred beans there and using those to sort of illustrate how your family divides up the, the charitable giving. Yeah, she did a couple things there that we did not expect. Uh, one thing that she did was that she took the wants and needs conversations that we'd been having around spending and saving, and she applied them to charity, which was not something that we had thought to do in quite that same way. And so her feeling was, you know, the public art fund that, uh, you know, was asking us for money for statues in public places, she felt like that was really much more of a want uh, than a need set against all of the other suffering in the world and the places that we could give. And she was upset by some of the pitches that came in from organizations where she had had affiliations, a, a dance studio, a nonprofit dance studio where she took classes was one of them. She said, this letter doesn't explain why they need the money. It only explains why they want it. Uh, and we thought that was pretty cool. We had not thought to you know, bring that same perspective to bear on the decision making. Heads up, charitable organizations. Craft your pitches accordingly. <laughs> um, one place where these questions get really intense for a lot of families are in conversations about panhandlers and the homeless. Conversations often stem from those encounters, whether you're a person who 
typically gives money to those you encounter in need or someone who doesn't for various reasons. You write in the book that you have changed your tune on what you do when you're with your kids and someone asks for money. Why was that? Well, originally, when I encountered panhandlers as an adult in New York City, my thought was always that I should find other ways to give because giving to someone directly on the street may not actually be the best thing for that person if they are addicted to an, a, a, you know, an addictive substance or if they have mental health issues. They may not actually be well enough to make the best possible choices for their money. So, you know, better to give them food or better to give to organizations that are better equipped um, to help uh, kind of change their surroundings and get them the help that they need. And I thought that was the best approach to take. But after doing that in front of my daughter when she was two and three and four years old, that did not seem right either. It felt like the best thing that I could do for her at that age was to model compassion, even if it meant giving 50 cents or a dollar to someone who might not make the best use of it uh, some of the time under certain circumstances, um, and that I could wait until later, until she was eight or nine or 10, uh, to help her understand that um, giving directly in those instances might not be the best thing for people. Uh, and then we could have the conversation about where else we could give instead in that moment or later on. I also like the way driving families um, deal with this. You know, in most of the rest of the country, people are not taking public transport each and every day, or at least outside of the um, boundaries of, you know, four or five major cities. They're not. And what those families do often, and I talk about a family uh, in the book that did this, you know, they wanted to be able to give to, particularly in the Bay Area uh, in LA, where there's a lot of homeless people and a lot of stop traffic. Some of those families uh, put together bags of useful things that people might find helpful who don't have a permanent home. And so they go to Costco and they load up on high-protein snacks and tissue and pens and hand warmers, and they put those in bags. And when someone is tapping at the windshield, when they're stopped at a light, they hand that over instead of money. And that makes the kids feel like they're doing something nice and doing something helpful. And it has a much higher likelihood of actually being helpful uh, than a dollar or two might be in that moment. It feels really valuable, I think, also for kids to do the giving themselves. And I've tried to incorporate that in various ways in our family. And, you know, one way is when you are giving to a, a panhandler or to a homeless person, to someone in need, to you can give, but your child can also give. Your child can have that encounter. You also talk a lot about finding ways for when your children are giving to organizations to allow them to present that in person and that that can have a real effect on the organization and on the child. Yeah, it turns out that it feels good to give. We know this as adults, although we don't stop to think about it quite in that way in considering, you know, the dopamine hit that we get from pushing the button on the internet or writing the check or doing the volunteer work, but it does in fact elevate our mood. Most of the research on this shows that. So, you know, there's some self-interest in this, too. It makes us happier than spending on ourselves in many instances. Uh, and it turns out that the same thing is true for kids. And they are more likely to give and give generously if they think or know that somebody is watching. And so, you know, why not take advantage of that, right? And it turns out that many local organizations are used to kids showing up every so often to empty their giving jar on the desk of the, you know, development assistant. <laughs> 
important. <laughs> and they know to make a big deal out of it. And they take a picture and, you know, they shake hands and they introduce them to everybody. And maybe they put it up on their Facebook page if, you know, you allow them to. And that makes the kid feel important. It's addicting, really. And, you know, that's the sort of thing, the sort of feeling that we want them to crave and to come back to again and again if they can. So I'm curious about that, actually, that, you know, the, there's an idea that anonymous giving is the highest form of giving. Would you say, for like, scrap that for kids? Or maybe you say scrap that for everyone, but especially for kids, because you are trying to get them like the like attention seeking aspect of it is actually a positive I'd certainly try the attention-seeking aspect of it to see how they react. Some kids will be shy. Some some will be embarrassed to, you know, give directly to people who have less than them. And, and that's fine. You know, there's no hard and fast rule here. Um, I don't know uh, for certain. I'm not sure I would agree with uh, anonymous giving being the highest form of giving. Um, I think one of the reasons that, you know, some people want their name in the program or want their name uh, on a building is in part to say thank you for what the organization has given given to them and to publicly acknowledge that I got to where I got, whether I'm still alive because of the hospital that treated me or whether I succeeded because of the school that helped me. Uh, I am here because of what you did for me, and I want to get up in public and tell you how much I appreciate it. Um, But it also serves to set an example for others, particularly people who are of more modest means. You know, if I was able to dig deep to get to the $500 annual giving level, then you can too, and you should, and I am in effect challenging you to do so. So I'm not sure about the anonymity thing in general for adults, um, but for kids, yeah, they should definitely take a swing at, you know, kind of giving directly themselves in a way that feels at least semi-public and let them see how that feels. Aside from all the other reasons to encourage generosity, it also feels important to me as a parent because we, like many of our listeners, not all, of course, but many, we have fairly privileged kids and generosity when you make a point of generosity, it, it can supplant extravagance, I think, sometimes. And you tell this great story in your book that I'd love you to tell our listeners about this one school that has completely changed how bar mitzvah season works. It's Brandeis Hillel in San Francisco, and they made a decision about 20 years ago that was, I think, tough for some parents to swallow, but really has changed how things are done. Can you tell us that story? Sure. And, you know, this story and and this way of doing things applies just as much to Sweet Sixteens or, you know, other birthday parties in institutions where there are not people of faith. I mean, there was a faith-based element to the curriculum they eventually put together. But what happened was this. They decided that all of these gifts that all of these parents were buying for all of these kids each and every year for all of the bar and bat mitzvahs were ridiculous. They were spending 10 or 15 or 20 or $30 each for each of the 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 kids, and they were getting all of these trinkets that were ultimately meaningless. They would break or they would stop using them or they would outgrow whatever it is that they got. And so a really smart parent there named Michael Kesselman, who was himself a veteran of nonprofit work and foundation work, uh, proposed a radical idea. He said, let's dispense with all of this silly gift giving. Let's just take all of the money that we would have spent anyway, throw it in a big pile, hand it over to the kids, and let them give it all away. So they, in effect, created a, a seventh grade foundation. They called it the seventh grade fund. And that amount of money, just the seed amount, just the gift budget from these families, equaled fifteen or $20,000, which, you know, again, if you're talking about 30 or 40 gifts over 30 or 40 bar and bat mitzvah weekends really does add up. And then people in the community were so thrilled by this that they threw some more money onto the pile. And pretty soon these kids had 
20, 30, 40, 50,000 dollars. This was real money, and grown-ups in suits would come and pitch these seventh graders at lunchtime trying to get some of their money. And very quickly, the kids grew incredibly savvy about the grown-ups who were coming in, you know, looking for a chunk of their change. And eventually, the school realized how powerful this was. They built a whole year-long curriculum for these kids involving not just religious text study, but, you know, Barbara Ehrenreich and, you know, the reading of municipal ordinances on panhandling and, you know, all sorts of fiction and nonfiction that got at some of these issues of, you know, who had more and who had less and how that came to pass and whose needs were greatest and how on earth could we weigh one against the other and local versus global and Jewish versus non-Jewish. And, you know, it blew these kids' minds and they had real power to take real money and make a real difference. And since then, organizations, Jewish and non-Jewish schools and other institutions all over the country have taken this idea and run with it. And, uh, you know, it's pretty powerful stuff. I love that. And I love that it became part of the curriculum in the middle school, but also part of the culture of the school. Now it's just understood that at the school, this is the way things work. And this is one of the things that we now think about. And it's just such a great way to instill that in kids. All right. The book is The Opposite of Spoiled. It is really great. I'm following all its advice, Ron. Uh, listeners, we want to hear from you. Please email us at momanddad at slate.com to tell us how you have incorporated giving and charity in your family's life. Thank you so much for coming on the shock to us. Thanks, Ron. Ron. Thank you, guys. Okay, on to our listener call. But first, a word from our second advertiser, Little Passports. Bring a travel adventure home each and every month with Little Passports, the award-winning subscription service for kids. Pen pal Sam and Sophia will send your child a monthly package in the mail, each highlighting a new global destination like Japan or Brazil. What's a place that your kids really want to to go to? They want to go to London. Oh, okay. Bad, bad. Yeah, they okay. Go to so you should you should get them little passports. I did uh, because Harper you're not taking them to London. Oh, you did. Oh. I got her suitcase in the mail last week. She's really excited about it. Oh, awesome. Okay, follow the journey on the wall size world map and enjoy learning through letters, souvenirs, stickers, activities, and more, including that little blue suitcase you get for the first delivery. Uh, little passports makes the perfect gift for five to ten year olds. My mom actually is planning to get this for Harry for Hanukkah. Mom and Dad are fighting listeners can save 40% on their first month today with promo code FIGHT40. Learn more at littlepassports.com slash fighting. And again, that promo code is FIGHT40. All right, let's move on to our listener call. Who do we have today, Allison? Each week, we take a listener call and try to answer it. If you have a question for us or one you'd like us to find an expert to answer, call us. Leave us a message at 424-255-7833. That's 424-255-RUDE. Now on to this week's listener call from Mark. Here's my problem. My kids have friends over to our house for play dates once or twice a week, which is great, but I almost never see any reciprocation from the other parents. When I say almost never, I'm not exaggerating. One family has had my son over just one time in the past two years. Would it kill these families to invite our kids over once in a while? I feel like a pushover, but I also don't want to deny my kids having their friends over to our house to play. Any advice? Thanks. Uh, Before we answer, Dan, I want to know, are you guys the host or the parasite? Uh, We are usually the host, and we also find this so maddening, Mark. I totally relate to this question. For a long time, we really felt like we were the only ones ever inviting kids over to our house, and we were doing it all the time. But what about you, Allison? Are you? I bet you're the parasite. Are you the parasite? <laughs> Why? Why would you say that? <laughs> 
I'm not, I'm going to not take offense. You know what? It has changed. I think we used to always be the host on the weekends. We definitely used to always be the host, mainly because, well, our kids wake up begging for playdates like every day, mm-hmm. uh, but also because it used to be easier to have kids over. Like then we didn't have to entertain our kids because our kids were entertained. So we just like preferred it and it was totally fine. And we're ha- and like our house is such chaos anyway that, and we don't have any nice stuff. So we just like never worried about it. But lately the kids fight a lot with their friends and it's mm-hmm. just begun to feel more just like our apartment is caving in on us. And so we haven't done it as much. And during the week, I have to say, I, you know, we're both working in the afternoon. So definitely friends of ours with a parent who isn't working and is home in the afternoon often take Carrie after school. And I have like a lot of guilt about that because they just like I have nothing to do with it. Like at the end of the day, they like meet our sitter at school. And then I think Harry begs to go to someone's house and they don't can't feel like they can't turn him down. And then they take him. And I always say, you know, I'm so sorry. And like you can always say no, but I can't really reciprocate during the week because our sitter has to then go pick up Sam and just she can't she can't do it. So, yeah, I feel I do feel guilt about it. I feel like I would rather a parent say to me, I'd rather you or Mark (laughs) say to me. I, can you take my kids? Like, I'd rather just, like, people be upfront about it. Um, yeah. So that's one of the two things we've done that has really helped, right, is we just ask. Like, we don't make a big deal out of it, but we, you know, we say, oh, hey, you know, we're really crunched this Wednesday. Lyra really wants to get together with whoever. Is is there any chance you can host this time? And people basically say yes or if or they say no, but they're apologetic. But then they know. Or else another thing that has really helped, Mark, that you might want to consider doing is we have set up a lot of recurring weekly play dates. And when we make the plan, we explicitly note that we're alternating houses, that it will be, you know, we'll, you know Harper and Caitlin get together every Wednesday and we will alternate houses. And that all like, you know, that works. People are into that idea and it totally works for them. That's a great idea. You can also use technology to help with this a little bit, by which I mean a very simple technique. If you use the same email thread to make plans or if you always text the same parent, eventually they start to see right there in the history of your text that it's always just you inviting their kid. And often, eventually, they wise up. We saw that happen a lot with people. And then a sort of a, a bigger picture thing to think about. I think that this is something for you to think about too, Allison, when you feel guilt about these weekday playdates that Harry has, is that, you know, there are still parents who sometimes, who just rarely invite our kids over. And we try not to resent them too much. And we try and remember, and I think we usually do a pretty good job of it, that everyone's family is different. And some families are just at a point in their life, for whatever reason, where something like this can't be on their front burner. And probably us inviting their kid over really helps them out. And Either they'll pay us back someday or karma will pay us back someday. And certainly there are plenty of times when we need help with our kids from other people and we get it. So we try and bear that in mind and be slightly zen about it. But yeah, it it also drives us crazy, Mark. So good call. Good question. Thank you. Listeners, if you have a question you want us to answer, give us a call at 424-255-RUDE, which is what parents are who do not invite your child over to their Or a call if you just want to invite our kids over. Oh, yeah. That would also be great. (laughs) That would really be super great. All right, let's uh, pause for a word from another one of our amazing sponsors, Bloom.com. Starting a family is one of the major life events where everything in your life seems to change, including the products you need on a regular basis. And if you are new to parenting, you can be totally overwhelmed by the like the panoply, as it were, of products that are out there to choose from and decide what's best and what isn't. And so try Bloom. Bloom is a service that selects these products for you, that develops relationships with suppliers, and 
creates little boxes that are sent to you every month of five high-value baby or child products to help you discover what is good and what works for your kid and and what is really something that your kid loves and you as a parent love. There are books in these boxes. There are toys. There are personal care products like shampoo and craft items, markers. Um, They're really well-selected little boxes of products, and they're very specifically designed to be appropriate for your kid's developmental stage. It's not just based on age. It's not just, oh, this kid is six months, so they get a six to 12 month box and they're sending your kid like knives or something. They, in fact, maybe they do send knives. I don't know. I don't judge. But they do look at the developmental milestones that you tell them your kid is going through and they give you things that are suitable for that. When your kid is teething, you get a teething ring. You don't get a teething ring like 10 months after your kid finally has all their teeth. You can Go to bloom.com to learn more. And we have a special URL, in fact, to use and a code to use to get a discount. The URL is bloom.com slash momdad and it is spelled B L U U M dot com slash momdad. And you can use the code momdad to get 40% off the first month of all monthly, three month, six month, and 12 month plans. This also makes a great gift. And you will also get free shipping if you use that code MOMDAD. So once again, bloom.com slash MOMDAD. Give it a try. It's a great product. Great. Okay, the time is here. Our moms. When actor J.K. Simmons won the Best Supporting Actor Oscar on Sunday night, he hopped up on stage and implored the audience in the Dolby Theater and us at home to please call our moms. I'm told it's like a billion people or so. Call your mom, call your dad. If you're lucky enough to have a parent or two alive on this planet, call them. Don't text, don't email. Call them on the phone. Tell them you love them and thank them and listen to them for as long as they want to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you, mom and dad. So Dan and I are taking his advice and on the line right now from Naples, Florida, is my mother, Myra Benedict. Hi, mom. Hi. Hi, okay. Myra. <laughs> Hello, Dan. I heard that, too. I was watching the Oscars, and I waited by the phone. <laughs> <laughs> we only do it We only do it for, uh, I'll call you for work. Okay. We'll call you for public consumption. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, I call you plenty. Yeah, I'm kidding. I know. Okay, so we're going to ask you a couple of questions, Mom, now that we have you on the line. Mm-hmm. How do you think parenting is easier now than it was when we were kids, and uh, how do you think it's harder? I don't think it's any easier at all. I think it's definitely harder. I think it's harder in many ways. Number one, lifestyle. You both work. You live in the city. You have to schlep your laundry. <laughs> you, um, your lives seem to be just so crazy. And I think that's, that would be hard. Also, I think out there, there's just so much like on the internet about advice about parenting and um and I know you have such access to it and I didn't when I was raising you kids and I think had I had that I would have been very confused if you had to listen to parenting podcasts all the time <laughs> right <laughs> exactly <laughs> exactly uh, okay uh what would you say is your current cuz you're still a parent what would you say is your current biggest parenting challenge and I know the truth is it's parenting my sister, but you don't have to say that on air. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The biggest challenge is to walk a fine line and keep my mouth shut, (laughs) but also wanting to sometimes say things and 
but I don't. I try not to. And because I don't want it to look like I'm directing you or because I totally respect my kids and how they live their lives and how they're raising their kids. So I wouldn't want it to look like I'm trying to control things. I don't want responsibility for how you, how you raise your kids or how you conduct your lives. It, it, but I sometimes have opinions, but I don't feel comfortable in expressing them. But it's hard because Allison's screwing up so badly that you... Say that again? Allison's screwing up so badly, I feel like there must be times where you can't hold your tongue. <laughs> Nor should you, really. Nor should I? No. Well, but your child has to be receptive to hearing it. I don't want to fight with my kids. I don't like to hang up and feel like... have sleepless nights because I think my kids are upset with me. What she's saying, Dan, is I'm difficult. Yeah. Uh, Okay, wait, but this is a good transition to the the next question, which is what piece of advice have you held back and why? And please give it now. I can take it. You can take it? (laughs) I might be mad later, but I won't be mad right now. right. (laughs) Sometimes I see that, you know, you're stressed and I know why. I get it. But I'd like you to... Sometimes I'd like to just say, Allie, take a deep breath and just, it's kind of like when we're Skyping with the kids and the kids, all that I see are the tops of their heads. They're dancing around. They have ants in their pants and I can see on your face, you're getting upset and I don't care. I just, I just love kind of watching them and, and, you know, and like getting, getting a little bit of stuff going between us, but you're, you want them to sit on the couch and behave and have a wonderful conversation with Grammy. And that's not necessary. So I'd like you to kind of calm down about that. Oh my God. That's amazing advice. And, a mo- and oh, you have more than one. There's more yeah, than one. Thing. Should I? <laughs> Go ahead. Continue. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. So I would advise you and John, I know that you have talked about this, wanting to pass on a heritage that you have to your kids in your fashion and, you know, what's comfortable in your family and what's comfortable for you and John. I think that that's very important to act upon because I think um, the older your kids get, the less interesting or fun it'll be. And as you know, even though, you know, you don't have to be religious, there's a heritage that's passed on that is a joy and that it enriches you. And I hope that you will make that decision to formally give that to your kids. I know you do holidays and, you know, in the house and that's great and but there's also a formal piece to it too that you can't probably teach your kids. It's just there's the atmosphere at home isn't open to that, but going to Sunday school or Hebrew school or whatever school and they would connect to other kids and they'd see they're part of a bigger thing than just themselves. Okay. I hear you. Thank okay. you. <laughs> Uh, Okay, just two more quick questions. What has surprised you most about being a grandparent? Oh, I know. I'm very surprised at how much I carry those little monkeys in my heart. Um, I just, oh my God. I didn't realize it till till I became a grandparent, and they um, tickle me. I just get such a charge out of them. They make me feel so loved, and... When I'm taking a walk on the beach and I see little ones running around, I can't wait for you to get here and see them and be with those kids. Not that I don't want to see you and John. I do, but something kind of sparks in me when I see the little ones. We could just drop them off. (laughs) 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 Okay, Mom. Final question, which I didn't tell you in advance. Um, 
Okay, final question. <laughs> if you could call your mom, if you could take J.K. Simmons' advice and call your mom, uh, oh. what would you want to talk to her about? Oh, my God. I'd want to tell her how often I think about her and how she was such a accepting and forgiving and loving parent. And she passed on things that were important to her and they're part of me. And I just would love to put my arms around her and thank her for the kind of mom that she was. And I hope I'm that kind of mom, too. I'll let you know. <laughs> we, we love you, Myra. Love you, Mom. We I'll text. You. I'll text you later. Okay. Bye, Dan. Bye, Allie. Bye. 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 On to the next mom. Dan, who are we calling next? Uh, we will be talking to the beautiful Nikki Stewart of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. My mom. Hi, Mom. Hi. How are you? <laughs> Good. Thank you. The girls say hi. So uh, we were watching the Oscars, and we thought, oh, yes, J.K. Simmons is right. We, we had better call our moms. But we decided just to do it in, in a formal podcast form as opposed to just calling you spontaneously. I hope that's okay. Well, yeah, sure it is. <laughs> uh, all right, I, so I certainly got a kick out of the email letting me know <laughs> yeah. that I might have something to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I gave you homework. All right, so here here are some questions for you, and they are about parenting and grandparenting today. Is there a way that you think that parenting is easier now than it was when Dennis and I were kids? Uh, and are there ways now that you think it's harder now? Hmm. Well, one of the things that I thought of that I think makes it easier is the computer. You know, the internet, shopping for them, easy access, you know, for information on things for them, like camps, for instance, yeah. and online registration, and not so much running around. So that was the uh, easier part that I could think of. The harder part, again, is the internet in terms of monitoring <laughs> kids, especially as they get older. And then also just life just seems too, almost too fast paced for families now. And so not as much time or, like, lazy time spent at home. And then depending on, well, of course, this would be depending on your social economic status, I think there can be a lot more pressure put on kids nowadays by their peers to attain, to get things, and parents have to deal with that. I, I feel like even more so than I had to. Yeah, I think that's true. Although, I mean, I even felt that pressure when I was a kid, as you'll recall from the saga of the Benetton shirt. <laughs> that you tragically purchased me and then I never wore after begging you for it for months. <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> uh, all right. So question number two, you are still a parent, of course, with uh, two sons. Um, tell me, what is your current biggest parenting challenge? I think oftentimes as we get older, we forget that our parents are still parenting us, even though, <laughs> even yeah. though they're trying to stay out of it and stuff. So that was a nice, nice question to include. And um, I guess one challenge for me is, well, this is interesting. I have to start this really by saying this has been a topic of ongoing conversation between me and most of my friends over a period of time, a long period of time. So one challenge for me and obviously for them is how to encourage my adult children to remember, to recognize my experience, talents, wisdom, and knowledge in the same way as they did, say, like 20 years ago. It's no less relevant now just because we're 20 years older. And that was one thing that's been kind of on my mind, but, you know, I just, you know, it's not something I normally would talk about. Um, another challenge is trying not to say too much. <laughs> trying not to, <laughs> trying not 
time, of course, that was quite a lot up there, and I was a little worried about seeing that at all. But um, trying not to volunteer or talk too much or volunteer advice or suggestions, but it's, you know, it's very hard to do and certainly not always successful. You and my mom have remarkably similar answers so far. Well, I think it goes with the age of our development stage we're in now. Yes. So. Well, as it was for uh, Allison's mom, this is a great segue for you. What is there a piece of advice um, for me in particular about parenting in general that you haven't given, that you've held back from for some reason? And if so, give it now. Give it to me now. I can take it. Well, I have two, really. <laughs> Um, one is like, and I've sort of touched on this with you a little bit, but slow down your life because it really goes by too fast anyways. And maybe, or maybe even you could make a conscious effort to slow down wherever you can, you know, um, in terms of family life. And then it just kind of take the time to leisurely enjoy maybe doing nothing, you know, nothing's pressing. And I guess now that I'm older, I've seen how fast life has gone by. And like me, I think you'll be extremely surprised as well. <laughs> uh, I haven't said this because it sounds like such an old thing to say, and it's coming from such an older person and an <laughs> older generation. <laughs> but based on my um, my past experience as an adult child with parents, I would guess it wouldn't seem... You know, one reason I haven't brought it up is I would guess it wouldn't seem overly relevant to my own adult children at this time in their development, you know, so. Um, and then the second thing was just don't be so quick to expose your kids to everything. They have lots of time, and most experiences tend to be worth waiting for. And otherwise, you know, kind of like what's left for them to experience, you know, kind of slow that down a little. That would be my only thing. And I realize there are benefits not to slowing it down, too, but that would be my thing looking there. <laughs> that is interesting advice. I wouldn't have thought that that would be your advice, and I will think about that a lot. Thank you. Okay. All right. One more question. What has surprised you the most about grandparenting? Hmm. This seemed kind of hard because I feel like I expected to have grandchildren. They would love me and be affectionate towards me and vice versa, you know. But I think uh, what has surprised me about grandparenting is the amount of pleasure it has given me. It's great, like, watching the individual personalities develop, each one so different, to, and to realize the very sweet, this is very important to me, to realize how very sweet and caring they are, often exhibiting a sense of compassion, which to me sometimes seems beyond their ears. And it, it's so nice to love and to be loved. You know, so those things are kind of the usual things, I suppose, from you get from being a grandparent. But I've also been surprised by the amount of reminiscing grandparenting has triggered in me. You know, first I was a child being parented. You know, then I became the parent, and now I'm the grandparent, watching my own grandkids develop, kind of somehow fitting it all together. You know, kind of the whole life as a continuum thing. You know, it's pretty miraculous, I guess. <laughs> I just have one more question. How difficult of a child was Dan? Oh, my gosh. Well, at least you didn't ask how treacherous his teenage years were. Um, he he uh, both, he was just seemed so easy to me. I actually. was a perfect child. <laughs> He's so difficult no. now. Uh, well, I don't know. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I mean, I, th I look at that as more sense of humor, and I know you're kidding, but I don't know. He just seemed to be, you know, 
I mean, do all the usual baby things. And then um, as a child, you know, um, he just seemed to, um, didn't seem to have that real rebellious streak, especially or anything. He seemed to just be kind of a buddy and a, a fun person to have around, you know. He made me laugh. Is what he did. <laughs> Sorry, Allison. <laughs> nice try. I was great. <laughs> totally well, average. No, I think wait that's what a she's minute. It's, it's, that's true, Allison. Maybe when he's younger, but now he's becoming a pill, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that is a great place to end it. Thank okay. you, Mom. <laughs> Thanks, Nikki. You're Talk soon. Bye bye. Love you. Bye. Love you too. Bye bye. Bye. Okay, that was really great. I love talking to my mom. I love talking to your mom uh, and listeners. Take J.K. Simmons' advice. Call your moms or your dads or people you love. Okay, on to recommendations. Dan, what do you have? I am recommending a game to play with your kids that I actually haven't tried yet, but I read about it, and it's, I love it so much. I pledge to try it over uh, between now and the next episode, and I recommend that our listeners do too. So it came from a piece from the New York Times, Sunday Styles, um, and it was one of those pieces they do sometimes where it's it's called Sunday Routine, and it's about like a some fabulous person who lives in Brooklyn. Um, and this one was about uh, Manoush Zamarodi, who is the host and managing editor of WNYC's New Tech City podcast. Anne knows this person. She's giving the thumbs up from the booth. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Um, so this is a piece about her and her husband um, and their kids. And it like goes through their day. And it's like it's very charming and sometimes maddening because other people are always more perfect than me. But so they have this game that she describes that they play with their kids, which sounds great and i'm gonna try i want to try it immediately um in which the game in the game you pretend that you are george washington and then your you go around the house and your kids have to explain modern life to you they have to explain what that coffee maker is and what that thing does and what the internet is and how tv works and why they go to school and don't work in a farm and whatever you are a person from colonial times and they have to explain contemporary life to you. And I think I'm pretty sure that my kids will, will die with joy playing this game. Um, both because they will like trying to puzzle things out, but also because they will love treating me like an idiot who doesn't know anything officially as opposed to in the unofficial capacity in which they usually do that. That is Allison, a how bizarre about you? game, but I also want to try it when my kids are a little bit older. That's really yeah. cool. Um, okay. I'm going to recommend a remarkable television series that no one is watching, which is why you won't let us talk about it on this podcast. Oh my God. Are you doing it? <laughs> I'm doing it. I'm talking about the slap. <laughs> I just spoke that in all capital letters as Dan slapped himself. <laughs> Uh, okay. The Slap is on NBC. It is, if you're not one of the few people watching it, about a bunch of rich, mostly awful New Yorkers <laughs> who start off the series as close friends and family but are divided after one of the dads... Sound effect, please. Thanks. Slaps another couple's kid across the face. This is great. We didn't plan this at all. Uh, hence the title. Okay. When I call the show remarkable, I mean that it is remarkably bad. It is so bad uh, every parenting stereotype is wedged in and exaggerated, like the attachment parents breastfeed their, I don't know, 10-year-old kid. Um, <laughs> it stars some pretty good actors, including Peter Sarsgaard. It also stars Uma Thurman, who is just terrible. She is a terrible oh, actress. So I guess I'm hate-watching it, but I really do like it. Uh, I like it a lot. I'm recording it. On my, I'm DVRing it. And it's on Thursday nights on NBC. So if you're watching it, 
email me and tell me what you think to explain to me why we are watching it. Uh, this is our first hate recommend in Mom and Dad are Fighting History. That's great. <laughs> uh, okay. That's our show. Please email us. <laughs> Please email us at momanddad at slate.com with your thoughts about today's show, parenting tips, and suggestions for future topics. Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, and please call us with your questions at 424-255-7833. Thanks to our producer, Ann Hepperman, to the managing editor of Slate Podcasts, Joel Meyer, and to Andy Bowers, executive producer of all Slate Podcasts and honcho of new Slate business panoply. Uh, Thanks to our guests, Ron Lieber, Myra Benedict, and Nikki Stewart. Thanks, Dan. Slap you, Allison. And thank you all for listening. (laughs) 